So this Advent and uh, this Epiphany and Lent, rather, at Kenilworth Union, I've been preaching through the book of Philippians in the New Testament, sort of verse by verse, Lectio Continua, as they say. Um, Paul tells us early in that letter that he is writing it from a prison cell, so I've called this sermon series Letters from Prison. I'm in chapter 4 now. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep our hearts and minds stayed on Christ Jesus, our Lord. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When Ludwig von Beethoven's Ninth Symphony premiered in Vienna on May 7, 1824, the maestro hadn't appeared for public performance on the stage for 12 years. He was too deaf to conduct, and there had been some embarrassing disasters. But the Viennese were clamoring for their beloved Ludwig, so the theater's musical director put Beethoven on the stage on a podium and handed him a baton and told his orchestra to ignore him. And when the symphony reaches its rapturous conclusion, the orchestra had stopped playing several measures before Beethoven was finished conducting. The audience leaps to its feet with thunderous ovation. Caroline Unger, the 21-year-old contralto Beethoven himself had recruited to sing the fourth movement, was standing next to him on the stage, and she took hold of his shoulders and turned him around to face the audience so that he could see the ovation he could not hear. The audience knew they, uh, he couldn't hear the clapping of their hands, so they waved their handkerchiefs. Beethoven would live another three years until 1827, and he was working on his 10th symphony when he died, but for all practical purposes, the ninth was his final symphonic word. That's all posterity has. And the text, of course, is from Friedrich Schiller's poem, Ode to Joy. Joy, beautiful spark of divinity, daughter from Elysium. And then, of course, in 1907, Princeton University professor Henry Van Dyke is guest lecturing at Williams College, and he's so inspired by the beauty of the surrounding Berkshires that he writes this hymn and sets this poem to Beethoven's famous tune. All thy works with joy surround thee, earth and heaven reflect thy rays. Stars and angels sing around thee, center of unbroken praise. Sometimes St. Paul's letter to the Philippians is called Paul's Ode to Joy, because it's like Beethoven's Ninth in a couple of ways. First of all, it's probable that Philippians is the last will and testament from Paul. It's the last thing that has survived from Paul to the present generation. The Bible doesn't tell us how and when Paul died, but tradition has it that he died at the hand of Nero by execution. Nero himself died in 68 A.D., so this would have happened 64, 65, 66 A.D., Paul is probably writing the letter to the Philippians from a Roman prison cell from which he never emerged alive. 
And so Philippians is Paul's ode to joy because it's like Beethoven's ninth, the last and best word we have from the maestro. But it's also called Paul's ode to joy because that's its repetitious refrain, right? Over and over and over again. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. Last week I pointed out that in a short letter of 104 verses or 1,600 words, Paul uses some form of the word joy or rejoice 16 times. He can't help himself. Every 100th word is joy or rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, over and over and over again. And so I want to say two things to Paul about his advice to his friends in Philippi this morning. I have a, an affirmation and a question. The affirmation, of course, is that Paul's right about the prominence and importance of joy in healthy human living, right? Without joy, we are a mess. When the simple, small pleasures of, like, of life, like a sunrise rising over Lake Michigan like a red rubber ball, or the Eagles tequila sunrise on the radio on the oldies station from your senior year in high school, or a kind word from your friend or from your husband. When these small, simple pleasures fail to gladden our hearts and brighten our countenance, we're in big trouble. We're headed to some dark and terrible place, right? So who's seen the animated film Inside Out? Another masterpiece by Pixar, right? Don't you think Pixar gets it just right? about this, this film about this 11-year-old hockey player named Riley and the emotions which run her life and determine her behavior from a con control panel in her cerebral cortex. And when they started making this film, Pixar came up with 26 emotions, like shame and greed and envy, but they pared it down to five. Five emotions which determine who we are and what we do. Anger, Disgust, fear, joy, and sadness. And the way Pixar gets it right is that joy runs the show, right? Mild spoiler alert. Sadness ends up being the hero. Sadness ends up saving the day. But joy is in charge. And when joy is gone, when joy is gone from Riley's head, Riley is a mess. She can't play hockey. She can't learn in school. She can't be a friend. When joy is gone, Riley is gone. That's how the picture gets it right. Now, joy is exhausting. One critic said that in the Pixar film, joy is the Leslie Nope of the cerebral cortex. Leslie Nope from Parks and Recreation. And not just because she's voiced by Amy Poehler, but because, like Leslie Nope, Joy is a sparkling whirlwind of positive energy and friendly micromanagement. <laughs> friendly micromanagement. Joy can be exhausting. Nancy Reagan loved her husband dearly, but she admits in her memoirs that it was exhausting being married to him because he was such a relentless optimist. She said, Ronnie never worried about anything, so I had to worry for the both of us. Joy is exhausting, but it's also crucial to healthy human living, right? And so that's the affirmation I want to make to Paul's advice to the Philippians. I also have a question, though. Rejoice in the Lord always, says Paul. Again, I say rejoice. Is rejoice a verb you can ever put in the imperative mood? Can you command happiness? 
strange advice, don't you think? It belongs up at the top of a list which we might call pointless, annoying advice. Calm down. Relax. Be patient. Cheer up. Don't worry. Be happy. Imperatives, all of them. Did you know Bobby McFerrin got his catchy little song from St. Paul? Don't worry, be happy, says Bobby McFerrin. Don't worry about anything, says St. Paul, the Lord is near. And so the problem with pointless and annoying advice like that is that it invites a person to compel an emotion. Now you can tell your brain to think something and you can tell your body to do something, but can you tell your heart to feel something? Cognitive and kinetic goals can be achieved, but not emotive commands, right? I once conducted a funeral for one of the most indifferent fathers I've ever met. He didn't hit his son, but he did ignore him for 15 years, and then he abandoned him by walking out. And so now this young man's 25 years old. His father dies, and I'm conducting the funeral, and the young man is trying desperately to feel sad. He's trying to coax up a few tears because if he doesn't cry, the audience, the congregation will begin talking, right? And he just can't summon these tears. So he begins to think about all the sad experiences of his childhood. Old Yeller and Bambi and those episodes from Lassie where she gets lost. And he says to me, I'm not happy. I'm not sad. I am just completely empty. I don't feel a thing at the passing of this man who brought me into this world. So that's my question for St. Paul. Really, should you put the verb rejoice in the imperative mood? Still, that's what Paul does. That's his advice to the Philippians, his advice to us, God's word today. And Paul is appreciably more substantial than Bobby McFerrin's Don't Worry, Be Happy because we have to notice how Paul says this. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Joy's location is in the Lord. He says the Lord is near. And so you may think that you are desperately alone that the life has been crushed out of, out of you and you were lost in the middle of a dark wood where the straight way has been lost. And still the night is compassed about by sunrise and sunset. And you are never alone. There is always this unseen companion matching your stride step for step. Rejoice in the Lord, says Paul. It's the work of the Christian life, says Paul Tillich. It's the work. It's not an emotion. It's a task. Rejoice is like love or serve or care. It's the work of the Christian life. Someone once asked the famous atheist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche why he didn't believe in Jesus. And Nietzsche responded, well, his followers don't even believe what they're saying. His disciples should look more redeemed. Yes, Do you look redeemed? One last thing and then I'll quit, okay? Adolf Hitler became Chancellor of Germany on January 30, 1933. Eight years before this, in his 1925 letter from prison, 
Mein Kampf. He tried to tell us what he wanted to accomplish. He warned us, but nobody read it. The first English translation of Mein Kampf came out late in 1933 when Corporal Hitler had become Chancellor Hitler almost a year before. And so in February of 1933, three weeks after he becomes Chancellor, the Nazis begin turning an old munitions factory into a concentration camp outside the charming Bavarian town of Dachau. And later Hitler will send there these people he called Untermenschen, subhumans. From the very first day, the German church fell on its knees at his feet in adulation. In Adolf Hitler, the long German nightmare that had commenced with the Treaty of Versailles in 1919 was over. And so German Christians began saying, we don't need Jesus of Nazareth anymore. He was a sissy. Adolf Hitler is our savior now. We need eine mannliche Kirche. Eine mannliche Kirche. We need a masculine church. We need a church driven by testosterone. Jesus was a sissy. And so at the celebration of the sacrament of baptism for little German baby boys, this was a common prayer. Dear Lord, help this young man to grow up to be just like Adolf Hitler. Almost nobody recognized what was happening. But there was this German Lutheran pastor called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Two days after, Luther, after Hitler became chancellor, Bonhoeffer goes on the radio and starts warning about how easily a Führer, a leader, can be a Wehrführer, a misleader. Jesus was a Jew, said Bonhoeffer. Jesus was Jewish, and if you lose the Jews, you lose Jesus. He said it over and over and over again from the very beginning. Only those who cry out for the Jews, said Bonhoeffer, only those who cry out for the Jews have the right to sing Gregorian chant. You have to stand next to the Jews to have the right to sing the most sublime music in Christendom. Now, lots of German Christians shared Bonhoeffer's misgivings, but not his courage. He was such a beautiful soul. In January of 1943, he became engaged to a young woman named Maria. He was 36 years old and she was 18. Scandal. He'd met her when she was 12. She was one of his confirmands. She was in his confirmation class. He flunked her. But they met again when she was 18 and the connection was instantaneous and their courtship was filled with joy and good humor. She says that early in their relationship, Pastor Bonhoeffer was teaching Maria about what it took to be a great preacher and Bonhoeffer told her, I learned my first 10 sermons by heart, word for word, I memorized them. And Maria says, I instantly left the room for fear that he would try to prove his point. <laughs> One of their early, early dates was at a restaurant in Berlin owned by Hitler's brother, and when she asked him why he'd taken her there, he said, this is the safest place in town to talk. And so three months after he's engaged, he is imprisoned in Berlin for disloyalty to the state. 
And in his letters from prison, he says, My past life is brimful with God's goodness, and my sins are covered over with the forgiving love of Christ crucified. In Jesus, God has said yes and amen to everything, a gleeful defiance of nothingness. He was executed, hung, on April 9, 1945 at Flossenburg Concentration Camp. And I hope that date resonates with you. Franklin Roosevelt would die three days later. Hitler himself would be dead in three weeks. Flossenburg was liberated by the Americans on April 23. Russian soldiers were on the outskirts of Berlin on April 9 as he was being led off to the gallows, he said, this is the end for me, the beginning of life. Remember how John Steinbeck talks about the pillar of the Jod family in The Grapes of Wrath? Ma Jode. Can you see the beautiful actress that plays Henry Fonda's mother in the film? Ma Jode. For this family beset behind and before with tragedy, grief, loss, and poverty, her joy was the rock they leaned against for support. And Mr. Steinbeck writes, she was the citadel of the family, the strong place that could not be taken. He says her hazel eyes seem to have experienced all possible tragedy and to have mounted pain and suffering like steps into a high calm and superhuman understanding. And since her husband and children could not know hurt and fear unless she acknowledged hurt and fear, she had practiced denying them to herself. And since when a joyful thing happened, they looked to see whether joy was on her, it was her habit to build up laughter out of inadequate materials. So let that be your task this week, like Ludwig, like Paul, like Pixar, like Dietrich. Build up laughter out of inadequate materials. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.